Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. Judges chapter 7 opens with the ongoing story of Gideon as the leader of Israel. At this point, Gideon is preparing to go into battle, and he has troops numbering 32,000 men. 10,000 of them are going to get sent home because they are afraid, leaving him with 22,000. Then the group is going to be divided based on how they drink water, whether they lap or scoop. And when that's done, he's going to have a minuscule army of 300 people. The rationale for sorting them by the water drinking method seems to be about decreasing the size of the army so that God gets the glory for the battle rather than any kind of strategic difference in how they drink water. John Wesley has said this about what can happen when church numbers get too big. If friends are too many, too mighty, and too wise, it inhibits God's ability to work deliverance by. In other words, we can get so good at doing church that we don't think we need God. Sometimes we have to be reminded our goals need to be too big for us to accomplish them without the help of God, and we need to always be clear that whatever we succeed at as the people of God happens because God helps us and not by our own power. The fleece and the eavesdropping are not examples of our need to seek God's will and confirm that we're actually hearing God correctly so much as they are examples of Gideon's lack of faith. There's nothing wrong with being sure that we've heard God speak to us correctly and being counseled by wise people. But at some point, when we've heard God clearly, it's time to act and move. About that, John Wesley says, see how tender God is, even with the very weak. This battle parallels that of Joshua and the battle of Jericho. But there was no cry for the Lord and Joshua there. This self-reference is concerning, and it shows us that Gideon has some self-esteem issues. He has some arrogance and self-centeredness that's not going to serve him well. In chapter 8, they cross the garden, the Jordan. Um, God does not command or bless this campaign The motive is ultimately revealed to be personal retaliation. We see that in verses 18 and 19. Gideon's story concludes with the first serious consideration of a monarchy by the people of Israel. If they had made this insecure, arrogant, vengeful leader a monarch, think what might have happened. It could have gone even worse than it does Gideon refuses the crown, but he does accept an ephod, um, a priestly garment, and it becomes a golden calf for them. It becomes an idol. The monument comes to be worshipped. When we venerate the past, when we focus on past victories um, and those, when we focus on personal victory, those become idolatrous. We must always be looking forward to where God is leading us now and in the future. Personally, I want you to notice that Gideon had an awful lot of wives 
and 70 sons. So he is a far from perfect leader, which is a recurring thing that happens here in the book of Judges. As we move into chapter 9, we hear stories about Abimelech. Abimelech is Gideon's son by a concubine, and he's going to attempt to establish a monarchy. Um, He's rejected by his kin, um, and this is the inevitable outworking of Gideon's story. When a person is elevated too highly, when they come to think too much of themselves, then they want to be king of it all. They want to be king of their castle, ruler of their whole domain. So Gideon's arrogance and lack of self-confidence, his need to be bolstered, works itself out in this son of his who now wants to be king. This chapter, however, is the most sustained examination of the problems that come with a monarchy. Jotham is the only son of Gideon who escapes Abimelech's massacre. Abimelech then attacks the town that would have made him a king, revealing his own selfishness, and a woman kills him. Um, Another judges female who does so by dropping a stone on his head, and he very quickly wants his armor bearer to finish him off because he doesn't want it to be said that he was killed by a woman. We get a couple of other judges, Tola, and moving into chapter 10, judges for 23 years, Jair then judges for 22 years. Israel goes wildly astray after this point, embracing the gods of many of the other cultures around them. The worship of Baal and Astartes, um, these are fertility gods and goddesses. They suffer then 18 years of oppression by the Philistines and the Amorites, and they cry out to God for deliverance. They are persecuted. Notice that it persecutes those beyond the Jordan, it says, so west of the Jordan. It appears that the tribes east of the Jordan may not have suffered the same oppression. So Jordan does, in fact, become a dividing line for the nation of Israel, just as they feared in the beginning. But in this case, it's not the tribes east of the Jordan, who are suffering and are cut off from the rest of the people is the the ones who are west of the Jordan who are suffering. We notice that God does not like this ongoing cycle of falling away, regretting it, and wanting to be delivered. But in fact, God does deliver them because God is faithful even when we are not. Chapter 11, we hear about Jephthah. He's going to lead Israel for six years. He is the son of a prostitute cast out by the legitimate wife and children. This is very reminiscent of the story of Hagar and Ishmael. He gathers around him a band of outlaws. This is going to, we're going to hear echoes of this in David's mighty men that are gathered. Think of him as something of a Robin Hood figure. And the office that Jephthah negotiates is not that of king, but it's certainly more than just judge, more like a military ruler or a commander. The God mentioned in 1123, Chemosh, was the chief God of the Moabites. Jephthah's vow regarding his daughter or regarding whoever is first to come out is rash and it is wrong. Israel was forbidden the practice of human sacrifice. And it is the ultimate act of self-centeredness in that he blames his daughter for his distress. 
He made the rash vow, and yet he says, oh, why did you, were you the one who, who came out? Um, he can't take responsibility for his very own actions. She, however, is at great contrast with her father. She makes no attempt to negotiate her own salvation. She simply accepts what has been decreed. Words, again, matter in an oral society like this. In chapter 12, we have a civil war that occurs. Different dialects have developed. This is much like we have northern and southern dialects. We can tell where people are um, by how they talk um, as well. We have three more judges given to us really quickly. Isbun, who judges for seven years, Elon for 10, and Abdon for eight, before we get to chapter 13 with the story of Samson. Samson is going to judge Israel for 20 years. He's an incredibly flawed man. We see that each person, even those held up as heroes and judges for the good, are incredibly flawed and ever more flawed. Samson's unnamed mother, however, is one of the most positive female characters that we find in the book of Judges. She's obedient. She's trusting. She's hopeful. She's faithful to God. The Lord or an angel appears to Samson's parents and instruct them that he is to be a Nazarite for life. If you remember back in the book of Numbers, chapter 6, verses 1 through 21, Nazarite vows were usually for a short period of time, not for the entire life. That's a very high standard to be held up to, especially among a people who are struggling so mightily with any kind of faithfulness. We see in chapter 14 that Samson doesn't share this complete commitment to faithfulness. Um, Samson is going to get married, but he wants a Philistine woman. His parents, however, encourage him to marry an Israelite, to marry an Israeli woman. That harkens back to Deuteronomy 7.34, where they're not supposed to marry foreign women unless they fully convert to worshiping the one true living God, and we have nothing here that says this woman has done so. Yet it is a contentious relationship with the Philistines from the beginning. Samson is attracted to their women, but he doesn't seem to like their men at all. In verse 18, where it refers to plowed with my heifer, that is a very very sexually suggestive denigration even of this woman who is supposed to be his wife. Samson's capitulation, his giving in to the persuasion of a woman, is going to be a lifelong character flaw. It's going to hearken forward to Delilah, who's going to be his undoing. Moving into chapter 15, um, the bride's father believes Samson has rejected her and so gives him to one of Samson's Philistine companions. Now, Samson's mischief is not going to be in the form of riddles. His mischief is going to be destructive mischief, and he sets the fields afire, and the Philistines lose their mind, and they kill the wife um, and the family for it. Judah, however, when they come to hunt him to, to kill Samson for the destruction he has caused, Judah is going to hand him over. But he overpowers them and ends up killing a thousand people. He reminds me of, uh, this reminds me of Lamech in Genesis 4, 23 and 24, who overreacts 
and like Shamgar in Judges chapter 3, who kills many with um, an ox goad or a tool. When we overreact, we escalate the situation. When we think, when we listen, we can keep things, we can seek justice and not continue to escalate the situation. Samson does, however, judge for a total of 20 years. As we move into chapter 16, we now move into the stories more familiar about Samson and Delilah. He does like Philistine women, but the men hate him and he hates them right back. This where it says he carries these to the top of the hill in front of Hebron. He's literally carrying them uphill for 40 miles. This is a strong, mighty man. But he falls in love with Delilah. Delilah is not so much in love with him, however. Uh, In chapter 16, verse 20, we see that Samson has so abused this power given to him by God that he doesn't even recognize that it's now gone. And he does not have the presence of God with him. He chooses lust over the Lord. He chooses sex over sanctification. And this mighty warrior for God becomes a domestic servant to the Philistines. However, in death, he seeks to redeem himself and die with some honor. But notice that his motive is still entirely selfish here. He wants some glory and honor as he goes out. Then we move into chapter 17 through 21. 17 1 to 21 25 are two appendices, two conclusions to the book of Judges. This is very reminiscent of the fact that we had two introductions to the book of Judges. We had a social and military introduction in chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 5. And then we have the covenant disobedience presented to us in 2 6 to 3 6. Here at the end of the book, The first conclusion is going to point out the religious unfaithfulness in 17.1 to 18.31, and then the social disintegration that comes along with religious unfaithfulness in 19.1 to 21.25. The religious unfaithfulness comes to us in the form of the establishment of an illegitimate worship site in the Northern Territory, Micah begins this whole story by stealing from his mom, um, steals this money, then dedicates it to the Lord, makes an image that becomes an idolatrous icon. The teraphim, the word used here um, is teraphim, and elsewhere it is a figurine or a household god. In chapter, in verse 6, we're going to hear the refrain that becomes the moral and the refrain that tells us about the moral unraveling that is happening, and that is that everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. They're no longer doing what's right in God's eyes. They're only out for themselves. Micah first installs his son as a priest. He is of the tribe of Ephraim. He has no right to the priesthood. Um, and then we see he's going to replace his son with a legitimate priest with a Levite, but this priest is only a mouthpiece for Micah and not for God. So Micah is still using the religious structures 
for his personal gain. He's trying to manipulate God and manipulate the people in God's name. This still happens today with phony evangelists, preachers who are only out for the money and their personal gain, who only want the power and the status and only invoke the name of God to accomplish what they want rather than what God wants. The Danites are portrayed as a people who are incredibly hot-tempered, they like to fight, and they engage in unprovoked and unsanctioned violence and aggression. We move into into Judges 19, and we see this story of the Levites' concubine. A concubine was sort of a wife. You see that He refers to her as wife, and he is referred to as her husband. But concubines were really, you know, the the side action, um, not a legitimate wife. This story is going to remind us a little bit. We're going to hear echoes of the Sodom and Gomorrah story. She gets dissatisfied with him. She goes home to her father's house, yet um, the Levite misses her. He likes her. He wants her back. So he goes to get her. The father tries to get him to stay. On their journey home, they've left so late in the day that they can't get to their destination. They are going to stay over in the town of Gibeah, which is in the territory belonging to the tribe of Benjamin. A good man takes them in and tries to protect them. The men of the city are perverse, and they come out and they want to rape They want to rape this newcomer, this outsider. Instead, the Levite pushes his concubine out the door. This shows that he doesn't truly love her. He just liked her. Maybe she was pretty. Maybe she was good in bed. Maybe he just didn't like her up and leaving, and he's going to go get her back. But she's not valuable enough to protect. When push comes to shove, he is willing to trade her life for his And he shoves her out the door, closes the door behind her, and the men of the city rape and abuse her all night long. And on the morning, he finds her dead on the doorstep. In her last act, and her last breath, she tries to come back to the man who is supposed to love and protect her, and she dies alone and abandoned on that doorstep. It makes me angry. (laughs) He places her body on a donkey and he takes her home. He then mutilates her body and cuts it into 12 pieces and sends it out to others and says, Join me in avenging the tribe of Benjamin. (laughs) Go to war with me against them for what they have done to me. Not to her, but to him. In chapter 20, the others, the other tribes join him. They have bought this, what is really not an honest retelling of the events, but we have another civil war. They attack the tribe of Benjamin, and the tribe is almost completely exterminated. They attribute this to God. God led them to this. God gave them success in doing this. I don't believe That is a correct interpretation. I have said before that throughout the Old Testament, I believe the people, the characters, genuinely believe they are following God. But I don't believe they always are. 
We can be sincere in our desire to follow God, and we can believe we are sincerely following God, and we can be sincerely wrong. I believe that God allows them to follow the ill-fated path that they have chosen by repeated disobedience, by a hardening of their hearts against God, by not following that which God has told them in the first place. In chapter 21, we're going to find the conclusion to this whole story. There's another rash vow. All the other tribes of Israel are going to refuse to give their daughters to the tribe of Benjamin. This almost exterminated tribe is then going to find themselves without enough women with which to sustain their tribe. This rash vow is very reminiscent of the rash vow that Jephthah made. There are always consequences for rash decisions. Beginning in verse 8, verses 8 through 15, 8 through 14, we're going to see the first attempt at getting enough women to repopulate the tribe of Benjamin. They attack the city of Jabesh-Gilead. It's kind of ironic that in order to make amends for that holy or unholy war they waged against the Benjaminites, the Israelites are going to do the same thing to the people of Jabesh Gilead. We still haven't learned anything. This is successful in obtaining 400 women, but there are in fact 600 men of the tribe of Benjamin. So these 400 women are not sufficient. That leads us to chapter 21, verse 15, where there is the second attempt to find enough women to repopulate the tribe of Benjamin. And now they're going to kidnap Israelite women during a religious festival. Go out and snatch you a woman. And when this happens, the people of Israel are more concerned over how this violates the rash vow they made not to let their daughters become wives to the tribe of Benjamin than they are about the fact that the women have been kidnapped and are being raped and taken as wives. It really is a very slow descent from God creating woman from the side of Adam to be his helpmeet, to be an equal, to be a completion and a partner in life to where women are so completely devoid of value. It speaks to the absence of faithfulness to God and to the social disintegration that comes with turning our back on the ways of God. This is not how God intended people to live in war and with this absolutely dehumanizing view of women. What we see happen in the book of Acts, in the coming of the Holy Spirit, in God pouring out His Spirit on the men and the women, it is the fulfillment of a prophecy in Joel 3. It is reversing the fall that led to this dehumanizing state of men and women in our relationships between them. I'm getting off on a tangent because these stories truly break my heart for the women and for women who still live in similar circumstances. The book ends with that haunting refrain 
that all the people did whatever they thought was right in their very own eyes. And here we see that they have finally decided, as this becomes their theological reflection, that the reason this happens is because there is no king. I remind you that God wanted to be their king and their God. And they're going to reach the point where they're going to cry out for a God of their own. The Deuteronomic history will continue as we see that. But here, the book of Judges ends as it promised us it would with this unraveling of people through religious disobedience and moral disintegration to society. Where will God respond to us next? How deep will we have to go before we repent and turn? Thank you.